Welcome to Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge that this podcast was put together on the land of the Bunwurrung people and acknowledge their traditional owners, past, present and emerging leaders. The Living Free Project has recently embarked on podcasts with an aim to raise awareness about the need to do things differently for women and to highlight some of the common barriers and challenges they face. With current restrictions in place, we are recording online, so bear with us on some shaky audio. We hope you'll find the content makes up for it. Hi, my name's Jana Hargrove. I hope you're doing well. I'm your host for today, and I'm the Women's Outreach Worker for the Living Free Project. Co-hosting is Lisa Abbott, Project Coordinator for the Living Free Project, and in this fourth episode of Rewriting the Narrative, The theme will be focused around women in the legal system, key differences, statistics and challenges. We're joined today by two superstar lawyers, Rebecca Glue, Senior Lawyer of Victoria Legal Aid and Hannah Lethleen, Lawyer of Peninsula Regional Office and Frankston Victoria Legal Aid Office. Welcome Beck and Hannah, how are you both going? Thanks, Jenna. That is a uh, very kind introduction. We're both doing well, working from home, sometimes in the office, sometimes not. It's an interesting time. What about you, Hannah? Yeah, it's great being here. Thanks for having us, Jenna. So myself and Lisa often see you running around court with stacks of files piled up and you're assisting a ton of people with their legal matters on the daily. You both do an amazing job and we're very happy to be able to work collaboratively with you when it comes to helping our client group of women. For those that might not be familiar with Victoria Legal Aid, could you give us some background info into what goes on at court? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's a number of things that happen at court. So we legal aid, and I'll keep it specific to Frankston because obviously Melbourne would be doing indictable matters and they have other lists and things there that they do that don't apply to Frankston. But in terms of you know, Hannah and I and the other lawyers in our office, there's two main things. We provide the duty lawyer service and we also run our own files that are exclusive exclusive of that. So the duty lawyer service is for people that either can't afford a private lawyer who form a part of our priority group of people. So that might be people that either have um, an intellectual disability or an acquired brain injury, are experiencing risks of homelessness, Um, are a child or a young person, Um, they have issues in relation to speaking English or English isn't their first language, they are um, Indigenous Australians, Uh, they're at court for family violence matters or in custody and facing serious penalties. So there is an eligibility criteria that um, you have to meet in terms of the duty lawyer service, but it means that we represent a varied group of people in a number of different ways. So how many um, clients do you reckon you'd see maximum on the daily Mm -hmm. so if we're talking about the mention list so that's putting aside people in custody for a moment Um, say we're just dealing with people that come into court that day who don't have representation for whatever reason and they've asked to see legal aid I think somewhere between 10 and 25 Hannah and I were talking about 25 is definitely at the upper end And it starts to become very challenging if it's only you down there when you're getting up to those numbers. But we've definitely had scenarios where they've been 25 and above uh, on the mention list. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, it's 
as you've all been down at court, um, Jana and Lisa yourselves, it's a very high stress environment. You've got people there who are victims of family violence and the perpetrators are sitting in the same waiting room as them. You've got children running around, you've got people with cognitive disabilities, with uh, uh, mental health issues. It's a very intense environment to be in. And certainly as duty lawyers, we acknowledge that, you know, seeing 10 to 20 people um, in a list isn't necessarily ideal, but it's just the restraints that we're working within. And we um, do our very best to provide um, each individual person with uh, a very high quality legal service. And, and, and we hope that, um, that, they, that they think so too. Well, we do. <laughs> Thanks, Lisa. <laughs> I think you guys do an amazing job under the circumstances. And I know for many of our young girls that might be in children's court and women, you know, having a safe space and, and a legal rep that listens to their story and the journey that, uh, you know, caused them to come in contact with the justice system, having someone that will listen and advocate for them in the courtroom makes a world of difference. So I think you guys um, have done a great job at, at, at capturing that for, for our women. That would be really challenging to do and capture that in a short time where there is so much complexity. I know that our women present often with multiple, multiple needs. So how, how do you go managing that? Mm. So I was going to touch on that. So it might be the case that we see a number of people, but say, for instance, a woman comes in. In this case, I'm using a woman as an example because we're talking about how that intersects with living free, but she might come in. I will start asking her some questions about what's going on, have a look at the briefs. And if I think that there is something more complex there or a convergence of issues in relation to you know, a number of things, whether she is transient or itinerant at that time, whether she DHS are involved in relation to her children, whether she's in a family violence relationship or there's an issue with intervention orders, whether there's a number of criminal matters, whether there's drug issues or mental health or a combination of all of those things, what would ordinarily happen is that we say, this is probably not something that can be resolved completely today. So more often than not, we would seek an adjournment of the matter to a nominal date in the future so that we could then get her in for an appointment. And often I'll say to, you know, a client that I'm meeting for the first time, you know, we really need to sit down and have a chat about this because I can see that there are a number of issues here. And often what's expressed is relief. Great. Somebody is going to take the time. I can sit down with you. And often I get, is it going to be you? Because what people are so desperate for is the continuity and to be able to develop a sense of trust and rapport with somebody that perhaps they haven't been able to do in the past. So we try and really hold on to uh, clients where we can as well so that they can feel comfortable and we can get the best outcome. Thanks, Beck. What would you say are the key differences, Hannah or Beck, in offending of women compared to men? Well, I should probably say from the outset that Beck and I are uh, certainly not experts in um, criminology or statistics. Um, <laughs> most of what we're chatting about today is based on our own personal experiences. But I do know that there's a general consensus um, amongst the experts and also in the community that women commit considerably less crime than men. Um, and that's, that's a fact. And further from the Australian Institute of Criminology, um, it confirms that females are more likely than males to be incarcerated for non-violent offences 
such as low-level drug possession and so forth, whereas males are more likely to be incarcerated for violent crimes such as assault. So looking at it in terms of the prison population, overwhelmingly men make up the majority of the prison population. I think it's up to a whopping 92% at the moment in Australia. Um, however, interestingly, the number of women who are coming into our prison system each year is increasing at a significantly higher rate than that of men. So it's my understanding from, again, the Australian Institute of Criminology that there's been an 85% increase of women coming into our prisons over the last 10 years, which is a staggering statistic and certainly really concerning. And a lot of those women that are being um, held in the prisons are being held on remand, so they haven't been sentenced. And many of those women are facing very short periods of imprisonment where, the, where they're um, subsequently released on bail or they receive non-custodial dispositions. And on that point, I should say, and I know Beck really agrees with me on this one, when we talk about short periods of incarceration and you say that to the general public, a lot of people will say, oh, you know, she was only in custody for a couple of days or a week or, you know, whatever, you know, it, surely it can't do that much harm. But um, what I would say is that we can't underestimate the profound effect that uh, any period of incarceration can have on someone, in particular, um, someone with a complex history of trauma, so especially our ladies. A quick example I have of mine is a woman who was um, incarcerated over the COVID-19 period and she was taken out to Dame Phyllis Frost and she was subject to a complete lockdown of the prison. So she spent 23 and a half hours of her day in isolation in her cell. She was fed in her cell, no contact with family, no nothing, no programs. She's someone who suffers from post-traumatic stress disorder and cognitive disabilities. She was allowed out for half an hour a day and she was only allowed out in the corridor, not allowed any fresh air or sunlight. And look, I know that that's an extreme example in the midst of a pandemic. However, I, I can't even explain to you the effect that that had on her, that short period of imprisonment. I got a bail five days later, but that five days, that effect on her was so profound and her adjustment into the community was in, was very, very difficult. Mm. And even just a lesser example, say somebody is remanded, you know, and, and it's a scenario where you can't sort it out that day or it needs to be booked in for a bail application. And the stress or distress that you're often faced with, with a client saying, I'm going to lose my house. You know, I'm going to yeah. lose my place. And, and it might be perhaps that that is the only stable thing that this person has in their life. And often where there, there might be, you know, um, drug issues around that, people are often worried about who's going to go to their house in the meantime and what they're going to be left with when they go back. I've had that happen a number of times where clients have returned home after even a short period in custody. Their house has been either overtaken by a number of people or things taken out of it. And it just adds to the difficulty of being able to get on with it in a positive way when you get out of custody if you feel like you have to start all over again. Yeah. And, like, and as what Beck was saying, it was often our clients will be released with nothing more than the clothes on their back. And a lot of these women, they have no safe place to go. So then they end up going back to their partners who have previously abused them. And that's when the cycle really continues. So having therapeutic services at that point um, is so, so important to, um, to put in safe plans for them to be able to reintegrate into the community in a safe way. 
I think, were you going to say something, Lisa? Oh, just on that point before about the short sentences and the impact of, of being away for, for women, I think we've seen, I think we've had a, a common client where um, we had children, you know. Yeah, who's going to look after the kids? Who's going to yeah. look after the kids? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that being a really, real issue, particularly if you're somebody that's pretty isolated and doesn't have a lot of supports or doesn't have grandma or grandpa or, you know, paternal grandparents around or even maternal grandparents or friends and family that you can rely on. Hold on, I've got, you know, three kids at home. I cannot be here. This is a, a welfare issue. Yeah, absolutely. I've definitely had that happen. It sort of starts the cycle then for the children that may need to go into the child protection system as a result. And I think um, you said that the impact is profound, I guess, on women's mental health, Hannah. But um, now when you talk about women in the justice system, we also see the profound effect on their children and, and those that, I guess, you know, that they care for as well. Absolutely. Exactly. I'm just really interested. You've had so much exposure to, you know, a lot of different women that come through the court system. And in your opinion, what is the right formula for assisting women to, I guess, come out of the justice system and break that cycle? I'd love to hear your thoughts. And the role of workers, if you could, you know, what, what can we do in the health and community service to support the women going through the justice system? I like what you say about you know, you want to provide ongoing stability. It's not a scenario where you're just trying to coerce a client out of a short-term situation for the benefit of court or anything else. It's about creating meaningful changes, whether that be to do with getting out of a relationship, whether that be to do with engaging in education or employment, whether that be to do with abstaining from drugs and alcohol in a really meaningful way. It, it can't just be a short-term. It has to be something that exceeds beyond the end of the court date. So from what I can see and from working with Living Free in relation to a number of clients and one client in particular that I think of, the formula to me seems to be about, you know, when you meet a client and you can immediately identify the issues, which ordinarily you can because often there's something said. Sometimes you do have to dig a lot deeper. I've often had clients that have been very used to sucking it up or doing it on their own, dealing with it by themselves. But once you're able to establish what the issue is, the linking in of services, and I'm not just saying this because we're on the Living Free podcast, Living Free as a service are something really that I've never seen before. The level of rapport that you're able to establish with the clients and the trust that's built, and also the level of outreach so being able to go to somebody to be able to help them get to court, to be able to sit with them as a support at court, to be able to take them and buy something they might need for them or their, or their kids, all of those things um, really help a person to understand that they're not alone. And if you can teach a person and, and demonstrate to a person through action that, that these supports are in place and that they're not going to be let down by the services and that the services are available even after court, I think that is a really huge component in ensuring somebody sort of stays on track. Um, it doesn't always work and often things need to be lined up. You need to sort of have all of your ducks in a row. The client really needs to be ready. The services need to be there. Um, a number of things have to line up, but it, it can work. And I think early engagement and continued engagement is a big part of it. Hannah might want to add something there. Well, I just think from my experience, 
the 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 holistic case management approach that sort of one-stop shop in terms of um, therapeutic services for clients has been the most effective and that's what the living free project has done um, more so than any other project i've been involved with in the justice system i think the clients become overwhelmed with the amount of appointments with the amount of services that are involved at once it becomes too much whereas if you have one service who is overseeing everything, who's able to provide outreach and things as simple as sitting with them at court, providing transport, those sort of things are something that, that builds rapport, but it also just provides the, the bridge that we haven't seen before in any other sort of service. Um, and it's what's really important to keep these vulnerable young women um, engaged. I was actually yeah. going to touch on the court support, you know, and, and workers actually being at court supporting women, young girls, or all clients. I, I guess I've seen that, that can make a big difference to the outcome as well. I mean, and, and, you know, you've been there, Lisa, you've been there in a number of cases where uh, the judge or the magistrate has said directly, I'm aware that this person has been engaged with this service. I've got a letter detailing their engagement with services is very impressive. And to have the worker, the author of the letter sitting in court beside the person, that is absolutely instrumental in a lot of cases to demonstrate that there's been ongoing engagement and that you're there and you're with the person. And yeah, you know, you've been there a number of times where that's, that has come from the bench. Another thing is with um, having someone at, physically at court with the client, it means that, you know, young women who previously had this history of failing to appear at court are suddenly showing up. And that is huge. Being there for someone at court, which means that they haven't failed to appear at court, which means they've avoided a warrant, which means they've avoided potentially a period of remand is massive. And that's made a huge difference to a lot of the lives of young women, certainly. We've definitely had a few uh, runaways though, haven't we, Jenna? Exactly. And that's actually a really good segue because... We did have know, one come back around. Exactly. Yeah. And, and we tell, you know, the successful stories because they are great and because this program works and because with the holistic approach that Hannah was talking about, you can get really fantastic outcomes for people as individuals. But, you know, sometimes people aren't always ready at that time. And sometimes, you know, maybe there'll be an initial engagement um, and they'll, you know, maybe meet you once or have a conversation on the phone, but no, I'm not quite ready to fully engage and I'm going to go off and there's going to be more mistakes, but maybe I'll come back and re-engage. And I think that sometimes it's a, it's a step-by-step, slowly, slowly approach for people, but it's good to know that they can come back around because it doesn't always work the first time around, but you just have to keep being available and open and um, being able to provide these services. And I think that that's the proof's in the pudding. People come back. Yeah, definitely. Can I, can I throw a curly one in there? If you could change one thing in, in the justice system, particularly related to women and young women, what would it be? I think that to try and prevent those remands is key because often it's a slippery slope from that first remand. If there's a disconnection from services that have been, the person's been, the woman's been engaged with, there's a disconnection from their home environment, perhaps their kids are put into care. If you could sort of prevent um, those remands from first happening and get some services involved before that point, that would obviously be key. 
obviously we're subject to our bail laws and they're there for a reason. They're there for the protection of the community. They, they need to be how they are. But if, if I was able to yeah, prevent those few early remands for young women, I think that that could make it a big difference. Yeah, I, that kind of takes us back to the theme uh, of this podcast, I guess, which is women in the legal system, key differences, statistics and challenges. And I think some of the key differences with these women, yeah, is, as you say, that if we can keep them out of that um, mm. initial remand period, then because they are low-level offences... No, I hear what you're trying to say. No, it could definitely. prevent a multitude of problems. And I remember Lisa talking about this at the opening of Living Free um, when Rob Hulls gave his very impressive talk. But I remember, Lisa, you giving a number of um, statistics in relation to women and the increasing number of women in custody. And, you know, even as somebody working in the legal system, those numbers were really shocking mm. because they're on the rise exponentially. So if we could... And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but that was sort of part of the reason for the creation of this program was to be able to get to young women at those first sort of interactions in the justice system before they get way down the line and things get, get much worse. And I, I think a huge issue, and especially on the Mornington Peninsula, is that of homelessness. If I could change one thing in the justice system, it would be um, the power of a magistrate or a decision maker to have some call in relation to housing. Because at the end of the day, you can have all these support services in place. You can, um, you know, you can have someone who is who's, who is willing to um, address their underlying issues. But without a stable place to go home to, without that security, you really can't tackle any of the other issues. Um, so. I just, it's really frustrating to see these young women who are motivated to, to make changes. They want to get into the workforce. They want to get out of these abusive relationships, but they've got no home. They've got nowhere to go. And magistrates share that, you know, that anguish yeah. about of these young women. So if we, if we could have some sort of, I don't know, magical uh, order from the court to give them a safe place with a kitchen and a nice couch or just somewhere warm and to live I think that would be ideal so that's my wish <laughs> that's a great wish I love that tiny house project in Sweden you know they've yeah. got a community of tiny houses it doesn't yeah. have to be much it has to be something you know that's something true. that yeah and with other women preferably you know like I, I see these therapeutic communities Windana has a great program and it's so successful because you've got this, this beautiful therapeutic community of other women um, empowering each other and, and, you know, helping each other. And I think that would be key. So can we please build one on the Mornington Peninsula, Lisa? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's our next project, hey? <laughs> right. Absolutely. You know, the case study we've both shared, Lisa, you transported her to a therapeutic community. And hearing from her, it's just like, oh my gosh, like this is a woman who's been entrenched in the justice system since she was 16, in and out of prison. And suddenly she's just got this environment where she's thriving and she's loving it. And she's so excited for the future and she's never had that before. And it's all because of that environment that she's been, that she's now in. It's, it's quite astounding. Safety and security is your number one step. And I think yeah. without that, you, it's very difficult to achieve anything else. It's back to basic Maslow's hierarchy of needs and look at those basic rights and those basic needs. And I think it's a great place to do a lot more advocacy 
in terms of that intersect between legal and housing. I think it would stop that revolving door. I, I we see it, don't we, Jana? We see that once they get stable housing that's safe and secure, there's yes, just so much more that can be done. That brings us to the end of our fourth episode of Rewriting the Narrative, Women in the Justice System. Thanks for listening and thank you to our special guests, Rebecca and Hannah from Victoria Legal Aid. Join us next week where we'll be interviewing a consumer around her experiences in the justice system.